Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Guys, I am so excited to announce the first ever, the inaugural, you have permission in-person gathering. It's coming in Seattle, Saturday, March 25th. We would have been doing this a lot sooner if not for COVID. I'm excited to finally get this going. There will be two or three speaker sessions, probably with friends of the pod, former guests, and there will be breakout workshops, a Q&A session, or maybe both, and we'll do a live recording of a You Have Permission episode. The event is going to include lunch, coffee, and snacks. We're going to be in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle, so that means when we're all wrapped up for the day, we're going out to the local breweries for an unofficial after party or maybe a set of after parties at a few different locations. I'm so excited to hang in person with people. We've got early bird tickets available right now for the event. The link is in the show notes. We're starting here in Seattle. Obviously, that makes the most sense to do for the first event. But if this goes well, I'd love to see these going uh, beyond the Pacific Northwest. All right, check that out. And now we'll get into the episode. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody, I am on, I think, the downslope of a pretty mammoth cold, and you're probably going to hear it in my voice. Josh will do a good job editing out my sneezes, coughs, and nose blowing, but I can't change the phlegm in my throat. <laughs> However, it was worth pushing through that because I am joined today by my real-life friend, Zach Bolin, singer-songwriter, guitarist of the band Citizens, co-writer of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill theme song with Chad from King's Kaleidoscope. We're going to get into some pretty heavy stuff today, and I'm that, of course, makes me happy and excited, whereas other people, they might feel dread, but I'm stoked. Zach, thanks for being here. Yes, that, that was a good intro. <laughs> I tried I to pack it. a lot in there. I feel like I more or less succeeded. Let's just say a little bit about your band so people have some context. You guys formed initially as a worship band within Mars Hill Church in Seattle, mm -hmm. 
same yep. as King's Kaleidoscope. But you guys were one of the first to sort of have some independent success and ask to be released and go to Tooth and Nail Records and yep. sort of have your own career, which you have now done for a while. And you mm-hmm. relocated to Nashville, where you are a full-time songwriter and, and band leader yep. of Citizens, and you're, you're doing the thing. It's kind of crazy to think that that was almost 11 years ago. It is crazy. And and by my count, you've got five studio albums. Yep. Some live stuff, some EPs. The most recent yep. thing as of this recording is an EP called A Thousand Shores. Well, we were texting about what you wanted to talk about. And the number one thing I got from you is what you called, quote, our need for rightness, end mm-hmm. quote. And then the sort of relational and other consequences that that need for rightness tends to lead to. Can you start by unpacking that phrase, our need for rightness? I would say it's a fear of being wrong uh, that oftentimes makes us double down and dig our heels in. Mm. I think back a lot to my Mars Hill years. I started off there as a worship leader and eventually became an elder there. And you know, uh, it probably didn't help that I had a lot of fear of man throughout most of my life. You know, lost my dad when I was young and spent a lot of years of my life uh, with this idea of what a man is and what it means to sort of be a defender of things that are good and standing for things that are right. And I can remember having multiple situations where I would see these men that I thought of as these models, model men. They would cut people down as they brought their questions, and there wasn't really a whole lot of charity or willingness to hear a different perspective or even just like allowing someone else to process through their own stuff. And so I feel like coming out of Mars Hill really humbled me because I saw a lot of my own, just how terrible that environment was for my own personality. And I honestly, I just feel like I've spent the last probably seven or eight years really trying to live as someone who is growing in this, certainly haven't arrived, but trying to listen more. And probably the biggest thing I've been trying to do is to have a friend group that is more diverse. Hmm. I have friends from a lot of different backgrounds, but I would even say specifically from like a thought perspective. Friends who believe differently or think differently. Yeah, exactly. And that really has challenged me a lot. And it's funny because the thing that I thought was a bad thing, which would have been being friends with a bunch of people that are different from you, you need to have like-minded people around you. It's been the most enjoyable experience for me of my of, of all my years of following Jesus. That has led me over the years to really see the harm that can come from needing to be right. And I remember years ago, there was someone that was, I worked at this church and they were a person that worked in this position on on a team and they were just not being very helpful and they were saying really unkind things and I had to ask them to leave for the day because it was just, it was becoming a really toxic thing. From my vantage point, I did the right thing. Later on, a few days later, it comes back that it was my fault. And this guy who I had asked to leave, his superior had come to me and my superior. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait, what is happening right now? I thought I was doing the right thing. Mm. And my mentor along the way, he was like, you did the right thing by asking him to leave, right? But some things (laughs) are just not worth being right about. Because if you really try and go the distance and to prove yourself and to vindicate yourself, you might lose a friend in the process and you might Mm. also lose some credibility. And so that's really stuck with me. And that was probably 16 years ago. And I've just tried to really live by that. And it's not always easy, but I've had some different things over the past few years with just close friends and family where I guess I just had to take the road of choosing to be a person of peace rather than going to war. It strikes me that those are two distinct approaches. So one is be a person of peace, a peacemaker, a bridge builder. Mm -hmm. The other is what you were saying earlier. No, actively try to get ideological diversity around me. 
right? So one is maybe sort of an in-between position. And then the other is like, I'm really, I'm, I'm going out and doing this thing. So it sounds like you got to that first one earlier in life. Mm-hmm. You learned the lesson from 16 years ago. Right. What made you get to the point of, no, in fact, I actually want to be willful. I want to choose to put people around me that disagree. I think it first started with semantics. There's a lot of language that is used sometimes that comes with a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wasn't happy with that because I had friends who, like my neighbor in Seattle, who grew up in the church and was now an atheist and was fascinated by the Mars Hill thing as it was happening even long before it ended. And he would, sure. he would come over and want to talk to me about it and all this stuff. There's a totally different language that he's using. And I yeah. kind of would rather speak his language than try and get him to speak mine. Hmm. I love that. My sense from a more psychological perspective is that there is a real cost to having ideological variety around you. Like you're going to be less defined by your beliefs. You might lose some sense of your identity if your identity was belief bound. You certainly will lose some community if your community is belief bound. And Mars Hill seems to have been a pretty belief bound type of church, type of community. You know, I'm thinking about Dustin Kensrew's period when he got really into reform theology and, you know, that's the music he was writing and, (laughs) and it was a big tenet for a while of Mark Driscoll's. Of course he abandoned it when it didn't serve him anymore, but right. You know, those costs are real and Mm -hmm. someone might not always experience them being outweighed by the benefits of having an open mind, having being challenged and whatnot. I'm just curious what you think about that or what your experience with that tension has been. We're all this way. We all find the things that we really connect with. And then we like to find people that enjoy talking about that. And it tends to get pretty exciting. (laughs) Maybe that's the wrong word. When you start having those conversations with people that also care about it, but are coming at it from a different perspective. Yeah. You might, for instance, start a whole podcast about that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe (laughs) if you haven't, I'd recommend it. Um, I mean, even in my songwriting, I've just thought a lot about we have people that are listening to our music. I mean, this occurred to me not too long ago. Someone reached out to me on Citizens page and just said, hey, that was a message and just said, hey, um, it took my sister dying or almost dying or something and and, and your music for God to, to wake me up. Wow. And... I go and I click on their account, on their profile, and I see, okay, this person is like really, really into right-wing conservative stuff, right? Oof, yeah. And then I'll get a message a few days later from someone else, similar kind of thing, that's like really far on the left. Oh, interesting. And what I started to realize was, was that, you know, these two groups of people want nothing to do with each other. They still have things in common. <laughs> They're just too fired up on either side to, to even have the imagination or believe that they could possibly have something in common with this other person, at least around the things that they're really passionate about. Christianity has become the thing that's sort of, it's just really combative and it's kind of looking for a fight. It's entered the culture war space on both sides. So if you had songs that were a lot more specific, let's say, uh-huh. or if you were a dude from Skillet going on, I think rants, Maybe rant is an uncharitable yeah, word. Someone sent me a video of that. Yeah. But he did, he's doing this, this speech at multiple live events of theirs that shows mm-hmm. about the dangers of deconstruction and, and the left yeah. and all this stuff. So if you're doing that, then you wouldn't have the experience of people messaging you with identical language from yep. opposite sides. So there's yep. something about your lyrics, your songs specifically that is open enough for people of different, you know, whatever, persuasions Mm -hmm. or sides of a culture war to find meaning in it. But I don't want to be reductive in pointing that out. I don't think that that, I'm not trying to explain it away. In fact, the best art 
is accessible to people of all ideological stripes, right? It's not like mm-hmm. only conservatives like Shawshank Redemption, you know, <laughs> like that's not how it works. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. great films, great songs reach people of different cultures, of different countries, right? They, they reach yeah. across languages, right? So, so that is one of the powerful things about music and other forms of art is its ability to do precisely that. Well, I mean, the one thing I do know is that to take a really bold stance on either side is going to get you a lot more attention. Amen. And I think that that in and of itself, music, it's it's a business. And especially in regards to music that happens within the Christian community, CCM or whatever you want to call it, it is a business and it only helps to, you know, bring together if you know you're on the stage and to talk about something that people are afraid of they're afraid of the word deconstruction they're afraid of certain other topics and if the person that's on that stage is also afraid (laughs) i kind of feel like i don't know the, the guy from skillet but i mean that to me would be an example of someone who probably doesn't have a whole lot of friends that are in the deconstruction category that he's actually willing to listen to? He couldn't. I mean, they would not be friends anymore, right? If, right. if he did, he doesn't anymore now, as would be my guess, unless they can completely disentangle his sort of public image from his friendship, which maybe they can, but, you know, but that's tough to do. Well, I mean, think about it too. Like, if you know that this person has like they publicly and even just say let's in small circles like family or friends and yeah. they make comments where they say if you believe this thing or if you do this thing it's wrong and it's whatever and they start using language that's even sort of spiritualized in a way that's like it's not only wrong it's of the devil it's all these different things and now there's it, it's really complicated at least in my experience, most people that are really striving to sort of understand both sides, they just know I'm not going to be able to talk to that person probably about yeah, yeah. this topic. And I think that's the saddest part of it all is that while someone on either side of the extreme is trying to really get their point across, what they're missing in the process is that they're only gaining people that are either afraid like them or really believe like them. Let's put it even in that way that really believe in, in this way. And it's pretty much like, you're probably not getting a whole lot of people coming over to your side. Like there's probably not someone on the deconstructionist side. That's like, Huh, it's got a good point. I'm going to go over there now. You know, like if anything, it just pushes people further apart. I'm not saying everyone should do this. I just feel this as long as I'm writing songs about my faith, I really just live with this, conviction that I'm meant to write songs that are bringing people to a table rather than trying to push people further away. Because in all honesty, that has not, being in the middle is not very attractive at all. And or, or leaning a little, just a little bit more this way or a little bit more that way. It's not attractive at all. People want somebody that's going to sort of be their crusader. And, and he's getting the clicks and we're talking about it right now, but yeah. I think that the reality of it is, is there's a lot more people that either don't know about that or they just don't care. Let's take a quick break and talk about that cost of not joining either side. For this most recent Patreon episode, I've started something that I'm going to do a handful of times and see how it goes. I'm calling it the book pitch. And it's basically like a 30 to 45 minute conversation with an author about a new book that they are promoting that's maybe been recently out. And it's a chance to sort of talk a little bit about the particular thing they are bringing into the world, give them a chance to sort of give us the pitch ask questions about the process of writing it, sort of what they ran into while they were working on it. And it's not quite a full You Have Permission episode, uh, but it is like a, a nice condensed conversation about a topic with someone who's doing recent work on it and who's kind of up on up on the, the issues or whatever. Obviously, that'll be different depending on the, the topic of the book. I did the first one with my friend Jack Holloway, He is a music 
producer, songwriter. He also is a theologian with a master's of uh, theology from Union in New York City. And here is his pitch. Uh, I, I gave him up to two sentences, but he gave me one short sentence. Here's his pitch for Hands of Doom, the apocalyptic imagination of Black Sabbath. Uh, it is apocalyptic theology based on the music of Black Sabbath. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can either listen to the patron-exclusive episode, and if you're not a patron yet, you can sign up for one at patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. You also have access to all the previous patron-exclusive episodes, and there's something like, I don't know, 70 of those now. Or you can skip all that, and you can just go to the link uh, to Jack's book, which will also be in the show notes for this episode. Of course, patrons also have access to the patron-only Facebook group, and I am working with patron Sam Perez on getting a Discord set up as well. I think there's an unofficial one, but we're going to make that one official for patrons. Um, And yeah, so there's the online community and, of course, these exclusive episodes every month, of which Jack's is the most recent. All right, back to my conversation with Zach Bolin. So we've talked about Skillet the Christian rock band whose singer is is becoming an anti-deconstruction guru. We have to also then mention Alyssa Childers and her book, Another Gospel. She's taking aim at progressive Christianity. Similar, not quite exactly the same critique, right? So people can deconstruct into progressive Christianity. That's what's happened with me. Or they can deconstruct out of the faith altogether or to mm-hmm. another faith. So it's a bit of a subset of that larger deconstruction thing. But Alyssa Childers was in uh, a, Christ- a CCM band, Zoe Girl, right? And that their mm-hmm. career had sort of ended. And now she's got a new career. And, you know, I've invited her on this show. Of course, she didn't respond, even though we had already been in an email chain together. And, you know, she might have her reasons. But my guess is it just doesn't help her to yeah. talk with me. It doesn't. It, she could get branded as a collaborator by having mm-hmm. a conversation with me. Yeah. <laughs> if that's not a red flag, I mean, what is, you know, like, that's like, okay, cool. So truth is not really what we're after or mutual right. understanding. It's something else. It's fucking branding. It's, yeah. I don't know, protecting mm-hmm. a business empire of, of some yeah. sort. And, and I understand that. Like, I wouldn't expect an executive officer of a large company to come on my show and tell me all their, <laughs> you know, hot takes about things that would, you know, I mean, I get it, yep. but an executive at Oracle or REI is not writing books that purport to be getting at the truth. And Alyssa yep. Childers is sure. And this is kind of what we're seeing with a lot of these church scandals is all this, all this lawyer speak and all these guys listening to their lawyers about protecting the institution from, you know, litigious issues or whatever. Yeah. But these institutions are churches or ministries. They don't exist for the same reason that Lego exists, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like they're not, they're not, they're not like primarily for profit product makers. They're supposed to be doing the body of Christ in some meaningful way. And, that's not really where I intended to, to take this part of the conversation, but I'm curious <laughs> if you have any thoughts about it. I'm going to take it back to a Marshall thing for a minute. Cause Perfect. That's what the listeners want. Let's, let's play the hits. That's, let's give the people what they want. Yeah. I remember my last time meeting in a room with Mark and the other executive elders, and it was myself and two other guys and music guys at Mars Hill. And one of the music guys said to Mark, hey, you really need to tell the church what's going on because this is getting pretty crazy. Like people have questions, they're not getting answers. I was already coming in pretty fired up because of a guy who had been just, in my opinion, just really should not have been fired. And it was just because he didn't think that he saw change in Mark. And so he was fired. And so anyway, I remember Mark saying, well, I mean, you know, I, I would talk about it, but I can't. Because if I do, we could have, you know, a stack of lawsuits on our desk this week. I mean, just look at somebody. I I think it was Joshua Harris used as an example. There was something going on within that whole movement. He's like, look at that. If I, you know, look at all the lawsuits they're dealing with right now. If I say anything, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And I remember just sitting there thinking like, gosh, the walls and the excuses that we make as a means for not 
just coming out and talking about something is crazy. It's really easy to build a castle, a team of people like the Skillet and Alyssa Childers kind of thing of people who really are your warriors and they're they're your fierce defenders and they're going to go to battle for you and they're going to basically speak on your behalf. Yeah. Because when someone goes in the comment section and says something, you're like, oh, someone's going to, someone's going to pop in there and get that. And you feel, you know, you got, it's you, like, you got your reply guys ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. My phrase that I've been using is I'm a conscientious objector in the culture war. Mm-hmm. I'm burning my culture war draft card. Uh, <laughs> I, I have opinions, you know, I right. have policy opinions. I have yep, theological yep. opinions, whatever. And I will continue to, hold them and challenge them and, and research them, et cetera. But I'm not joining one of the sides of the war. I'm not going to do that. Right. What really helped me was I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to read through the gospels chronologically sort of as the stories went. And it's a little harder with some of them, but it, for the most part, just kind of following along that way. And I do, yeah. I've done that two or three times now. And really what, led me to this place was not, oh, this seems like a good idea, or I'm tired of this, I'm tired of that. It was honestly just studying the life of Jesus. Yeah. And what I started to realize was that, honestly, I thought about this a lot with my kids. Like, so much of what they're learning about God is the same things that I learned. These sort of images and these narratives and these stories that you tell kids about God— and you're creating this narrative, and for better or worse, it's what you're doing, and then you grow up. And you're an adult. And all along, the assumption was, oh, well, yeah, Jesus, and that's, you know, he's died on the cross, and, you know, whatever kind of kind of simple little tight language you use. And you're like, I, yeah, I kind of got that figured out. I already know what it is. Hmm. And at least for me, what I started to realize is, like, I actually don't care at all if my kids do not read anything in Scripture outside of the Gospels for the entire hmm. time they're my, with me. I don't care. And the reason why is because if it really is about following Jesus, then they need to know who they're following. And I started to realize I actually don't. Like so much of who I think I'm following is through what I've, it's just really through the loudest voices on either extreme, either one extreme that pushed me to something else or -hmm. another extreme that pushed me something else or convinced me of something. When I look at who at the life of Christ and the different people that he is around, he doesn't strike me as someone who's really trying to like bang a drum and get a bunch of people (laughs) on his side. As hard as that is, and as seemingly unproductive as that may feel, because it, it takes a lot of time to not necessarily always have people agree with you when you make a great point. If we're willing and honest with ourselves, you start to see these themes of things that Jesus is sort of getting at, you know, one of them being the kingdom of God being present um, Mm -hmm. among us in this world. You start to see this whole language of death, Jesus going to a cross and that the symbolism that that it is for us, this whole concept through so many of his parables of, of grace and freedom and sort of the confounding picture that it is to receive something that we're not, uh, that we are meant to do nothing in order to receive. Like all of that kind of stuff, sort of childlike faith, childlike approach to God. Yeah. Right. Even that though, it's like that are things that we said and or we say, yeah. And we sort of sum it up into that. And what we miss along the way is like, it's so much more like you need that statement, and then our own history of studying what that means. Mm. And I think for Christians that are in media or doing things in in that kind of way, my personal opinion is that so much of our idea of Jesus has been formed through what other people said rather than what we could even read. I mean, I think it's kind of axiomatic. It's just kind of true of all people that what we end up believing the average person in a particular culture or subculture comes more from that culture or subculture than it does whatever that culture or subculture says it comes from. So let's say that you are a MAGA XT party, current MAGA, you know, 
Your yep. your Twitter avatar is like an eagle and an American flag holding an <laughs> AR-15. Like yep. you say that your culture comes from like the founding fathers and the constitution, but like 95 out of a hundred of those people couldn't quote you much from yep. any of the founding fathers, right? Right. Uh, they might know some of the constitution. They certainly know the second amendment, you know, like, but sure. it, it's, it's true. And then people on the left too, like, I don't know how much are people really reading James Baldwin and Langston Hughes and, yep. you know, you might read a Ta-Nehisi Coates book or listen to an interview of his. And it's like, that is a part of it. You know, those important thinkers who have established those cultures and figureheads, people who walked the earth like Jesus. But when it comes down to it, most of us are half sleepwalking through these purportedly important things that are coming unbeknownst to us or unconsciously to us through our culture. And that's a heavy claim about humanity. But if we can wake up to it, then we can have some kind of liberation, some sort of freedom. I think that everyone from liberation theologians to Plato, you know, are basically saying something similar there of like, hey, you're a part of this big mechanical churning system and you're in Mm -hmm. this corner of it and it's kind of determining your life. And like, you can question that. And today that's one of the big opportunities for people to question things is those of us who have been caught up in the culture war on either Mm -hmm. side of it. You know, you were talking about being batted around pushed by one extreme or to one thing, being convinced of one thing or another. And my question is like, aren't people fucking tired of that? Like, aren't people tired of being like a pawn in a media company's, you know, mm-hmm. financial play <laughs> essentially? Like, like, I, and you know, it's hard to know how to balance that. Cause if you go too far in that direction, you become totally unmoored and you don't know who to trust at all. And that's not good either, uh, yeah. nor is it sustainable, but a little bit of critical thought shows the real bottom line for a lot of these players. And I don't know, I'm just like, I'm fucking done giving them their little advertising money and having them spark my outrage and give me like little dopamine or there's like an opposite of dopamine one that like is excitatory, but doesn't make you feel happy. <laughs> That's okay. the one I get when I scroll the news. Yeah. I, I forget the name of it. Uh, yeah. It might be Norup and I don't remember. I'm just not going to be that anymore. You you don't get me. I'm not your customer mm-hmm. and I'm only going to support people who appear to be doing careful work. And I recognize that those people will not be as famous as, you know, the culture warriors, because we're in a time of great culture war. That's just the moment we are in right now. The one phrase that came to mind, and I think it's probably the reason why people on the extremities feel are feeling this is they're seeing the growing pains and they don't like that. And the growing pains are that, people are beginning to sort of wake up to the reality, which is I was sold something. Something was marketed to me, especially when you really think about it within the past 20 to 30 years, something was marketed to me. This idea of Christianity, more specifically, this idea of what a churchgoer is or meant to be. And I don't know what I think about that anymore. And that's, that's a lot of people there's change happening (laughs) and we're sort of in the midst of the clumsy clunkiness of it all. And I would imagine like our kids generation, it will look different because our generation will have gone through a lot of this sort of clumsy, which is impossible. I mean, it's like learning to walk again or trying to stand up after you've been sitting down for, you know, two, you know, two days, we're kind of stumbling and feeling our way through it all. And Inevitably, I think all it reveals is that we're in an age when we have more access to information than ever before. And I just think that there's way more opportunity now <laughs> to say, Ugh, 
if we're honest, like, I don't know that there's like a great answer for that. There might be like yeah. seven. Yeah. But I don't know that there's like one. And even taking it back to the beginning of the conversation. You mean like of a tough question? Of a tough question. Yeah. And that's not though the thing that was marketed over the past, you know, especially 20 to 30 years and even further back than that, of course. But you get it more like in, in academic or academic adjacent spaces. Like right. I'm thinking of the Zondervan four views and five views books. It's It's been there or like... Richard Foster, Streams of Living Water, where he's right. talking about each of the major streams of Christianity and what they have to offer. It's there if you look for it, but those are not the best sellers. Those ones are not, like, you could argue whether or not there's a change going on and people are waking up, Zach, that in the grand scheme of human history, if we stick where we are now, we will never be as popular as the people fighting the war, which is actually a, a transition. I wanted to, we talked about Skillet and Alyssa Childers and that's what I would call like hot rhetoric there. Mm -hmm. But then there's kind of like white hot rhetoric within the Christian world. There's the Sean Foyt and these sort of like anti-masking, you know, super spreader worship events that he had led, you know, throughout the pandemic responsible for, you know, some number of unnecessary deaths from COVID. Yeah. And, and I just, I do want to say briefly, I can say that. And I can also say that there has been in some cases too much caution around not allowing churches to gather, mm -hmm. like from a social psych perspective, it is very important that people gather with those yeah. important to them. It's very yeah. important, for instance, that children see adults' faces. Like, yeah. uh, all that is to say, there were days of the pandemic where caution, I think, was the Christ-like response. And then there were later days in the pandemic where I think people were not balancing those goods and costs, yeah. in my mind, uh, well. Yeah. But the Sean Foyts of the world who are now, you know, all these guys, and this is not, I haven't done a lot of research on him recently, but they're often tied with Christ, white Christian nationalism, Trump, election denying, all this stuff. Yeah. Like, that is a huge chunk now of mm -hmm. the Christian media landscape, financial picture. You know, it's a huge chunk of the of the profit and loss statement of a bunch of these yeah. Christian conglomerates, these media companies. I want to know as a band playing, you know, Christian mm -hmm. festivals and like, to what extent are you sort of forced to either share a stage or have you ever unknowingly shared a stage with one of these speakers? Like how insulated can you be from that world, which is like sort of genuinely dangerous I mean, like literally mm -hmm. dangerous uh, already during COVID and potentially with anything that Trump might try. We have fortunately avoided any sort of controversial things, but we've definitely been on stages before with people that publicly share a very different view and would probably identify with some of what you're describing. It's funny. I mean, it's just amazing how much you don't have to talk about <laughs> <laughs> when you're in those kind of settings. And I've, I've wrestled too, though, with sort of the association thing of like, all right, if we're associated with that, like, what are people going to think? And honestly, barring like a couple things every now and then, like we've had things where I've actually had to back out of like a month before. Cause it's like, all right, this speaker that's going to be there is saying some things that I just, I just feel like it's just crossing the line to, to, to such a point that I, I do feel like us being there is not the right thing. But m most of the time I, I sort of take the approach of, okay, we're coming into a space where they might even think that we agree with them. <laughs> uh, but that's not on us. That's on them. And I think what's really helped to crystallize that for me over the past few years is after having personally lost a relative to COVID complications and, and they shared a different belief than I did around sort of how we should approach, you know, I guess you could call it like protecting ourselves during the pan pandemic or whatever. 
they were people that were really against wearing masks and really against vaccines. And the vaccine argument, I can go with. I, I was vaccinated, but I can go with people on that because I understand that's a pretty complicated thing, especially when if you just don't feel right about that, I get that. But I think the mask thing, which has been a lot of, in my understanding, Sean Foyt's sort of like, that's sort of this symbol of they are infringing state oppression or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, the, it's the smallest thing. Exactly. It's a, yeah. it's not a big deal, you know? And I think that what has made me really sad is, is that you said it a second ago, like, especially as we were into the pandemic and at least a year or so in, it's like wearing a mask was not a hard thing to do for anybody. And I'm sure there were some sort of exceptions medically, but I would assume those people probably shouldn't be around anybody, you know, if that's the case. And so I do see that there were extremes. I mean, now after having lived in Seattle and then living in Oh, I bet. <laughs> Nashville. You you see all the extremes, but I mean, I'm not trying to make this about COVID, but it's a great yeah. example of where all these things get conflated. I remember feeling this actually. I remember first moving to Nashville, walking around in, in Frank or Franklin, Tennessee in this mall, and I'm walking around wearing a mask and no one else is wearing a mask. And I thought to myself, this the, the election hadn't happened yet. And I thought is it sort of here where like, if you wear a mask, then you're considered liberal. You're going to vote for Biden. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And if you don't Basically, wear a mask, I mean the, it's probably not a hundred percent. I bet you it's about a 80, 90% overlap. Right. Yeah. And then I started thinking, well, if that's the train that you're going on, then they would think, well, not only they're wearing a mask, so they must be a liberal and they're definitely not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and I think on the flip yeah. side, too, though, living in Seattle, it was they're not wearing a mask, so they must hate people. And vote Trump. and yeah, Vote yeah. Trump and everything. And that wasn't true either. But yeah. again, that's where I think it's really hard is from the Skillet example, Alyssa Childers to Sean Foyt and all these where you take these symbols or these words mm. and you use them as a means for pushing Really, I mean, I think about Sean Foy. I remember years ago, I haven't followed him closely, but I do remember this because it was a headline when he was running for some sort of political office. Yeah. And if I'm being completely transparent and honest here, my my thought is like, well, this is just a campaign. This is like another opportunity for him to to maybe make a run at that or do something like that. Whether he is or not, I don't know. Yeah. But I think that people are human. People have slowly start to get pretty predictable, especially when it comes to the extreme stuff. And especially people who are courting power. (laughs) Right. Again, like I don't necessarily get in situations where I have to talk with people much about that, but we have, I mean, we've been in a situation before where one time we were sitting backstage and one of the leaders was talking about a, a hip hop artist who's black and was talking about, man, I just, I don't know why they're talking about all this Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, it's really going to hurt their career. I mean, like, oh gosh, I mean, look at what we've done for them. We've given them this huge, all these opportunities, and then they're going to go and do that. For them. Yeah. And I was just, and I just was sitting there, and I I didn't get into an argument with them. But I just said, you know, I just think it's probably worth trusting that this artist is doing what they really believe is true and, and good for them. And it's still regardless of where you stand, surely you can agree that black lives do matter. And that's just one example of times where we might get into something like that. I just want to be very clear that I understand people have all kinds of reasons for wearing or not wearing masks, including, you know, immunocompromised individuals. That That's really the, to me, the biggest tragedy is the toll on the immunocompromised population. Right. One of the things that is hard to know how to adjudicate is to what extent do we prioritize the protection of that population when masks specifically or schools opening or whatever comes at the cost of children's brain development and yeah. social development and linguistic development. And that that's just like, no, no one's going to win that one. <laughs> you know, that that's just cost. It, it, one of those groups is going to pay 
then where I go mentally is like, well, why is one of those ultimately what's the main reason that one of those groups is going to have to pay? Ultimately it is, it is the unvaccinated who are imposing that cost. And so I can't do anything about that. I can't convince people to get vaccinated. That's just, it's complex. One more break and we'll be right back. So here's kind of the last thing I want to talk about, Zach, in listening to these new tracks and and reading through the lyrics. One thing I notice in them is that you or you, the speaker in the songs, you have like more confidence than I do, apparently, about like a future life with the loving God of the universe. Mm. I wish I had more of that confidence. I have that hope. And I sometimes have that confidence if I have had, you know, an, an experience recently or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Is that a reflection of a difference between us? Is that a, is it aspirational when you write that way? Does it have to do with the form of a worship song, which, you know, that works well from an artistic perspective? Is it some mix? I'm just curious. I know that you, Dan, are no stranger to just hard to suffering in your life and Mm -hmm. to different things that have been really challenging. And, you know, like I lost my dad when I was six. And so I have, I will say admittedly been pretty fascinated with the afterlife (laughs) for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And I certainly carried with me for many years a view of what that was that I would say was pretty unhealthy. Wasn't until I got a bit older that I began to, have something that was what I would say was a pretty irrational belief, but one that I I do really hold to and believe. And that is that I genuinely believe that we are existing in this world to make it better. And that that is, that has eternal consequences. I operate so much more. I'm trying to as well from like, what are just the intuitive things for me as well? Like Mm. in my belief system, where does it take me? And a lot of mornings, like we have this spot that we sit out on on our property and we're looking out in the trees and I just, and I used to do this in Seattle too. And when we lived on a really busy street and it's I just sit out there and I'm just reminded of the fact that there's so much happening around me <laughs> that I don't even really understand just even in science and nature, but just even like just relationally. Like my wife, Natalie, and I were just talking about, well, you know, Natalie, but just for anyone listening, we're just talking about this, you know, the other day, you know, she works at this market in town, a small little market, and she's having conversations with someone there that's asking her about, started asking her about church. Natalie's never talked about any of that stuff. Like she doesn't, she's not bringing it up. She's been learning about this person for all this, for this whole time. And you actually, she starts to see that, oh, we have, we have a lot in common. We just maybe approach it a little different, but it's still a good thing. And that's that, like, we, we, we just want to make things and create things and do things Hmm. that are for the betterment of other people. And that feels like a really good starting point for me when it comes to talking about my faith. And I will say this too. I think that the whole concept of evangelism is quite nuanced and as far as like what I think it is, but two, I think what it has become has just become a a pretty massive burden for people. Yeah. If you fly next to someone on the plane and you didn't share the gospel, I felt guilty about that so many times. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't talk to him. There's this author I love, Robert Kappen, and he's written two books that I think are incredible. One is Hunting the Divine Fox. And another one is this book on the parables. And he talks about how, you know, Hunting the Divine Fox, I think was written in the seventies. And he talks about how even back then, like we talk about inviting Jesus into our heart or doing all these things. And he's like, salvation is so much less about, Hey, you God or whatever, come over here, come over here. Yeah. Yeah. Let me hear about that. And you know, it's so much less about God showed up and more about us coming to the place of like, Oh yeah, God was, God was always there. And so I just think that that's true. (laughs) And I live with that belief that God is everywhere and Mm. that God always has been. 
and that despite so many things that people might do to try and explain that in sort of this exact way, that doesn't really matter to me. Like when we were talking earlier about arguing with people, like the details, like I get details to an extent can matter, but at the same time, I just am so fascinated by the larger narrative and the bigger picture that I just want to camp out in there. And one of the things in the big picture for me is this belief that all things are being restored. And I mean that as all things, not just... Where does the evidence come from for that? Is it experiential? Mm -hmm. Is it faith in the text? Is it... Where does the evidence come from? I think it's all those things. I mean, from a scriptural standpoint, I don't know how you couldn't see the narrative that's happening of God restoring. And I mean, regardless of where you fall, like in your view of the creation story, and mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't mind putting my cards on the table in here. Like I, I don't read that literally. Um, and there's a lot of it that I I don't, but, and, and it's not that it, it's not important to me in the same ways that it is with other people. But I think the bigger point is that there's a narrative happening. There's a story being told. And as you kind of go through all this time leading up to Jesus, there is this narrative happening of a savior that comes and is setting things, meant to set things right. And then Jesus comes along. And it's funny, I had this thought recently. I haven't necessarily, I haven't really jumped on the chosen train. The <laughs> like show. Some, some yeah. people, the show. But regardless, I'm watching this one. And at one point, Jesus is saying to him, you know, do you want to walk? And he just says, all you need is me. All you need is to follow me. And I'm watching this and I'm like, that's insane. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Wow. Like a dude comes along and is saying, you need to follow me. Like, I, I'll be honest. Like, yeah, I'm, if that dude I came along like, right now, I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> no, I'm, I right. don't, I, I'm checking out. Yeah. But what, what I, I was, I journaled about this the next day. Cause I was like, you know, not about the show, but just about the fact that it's like, that is a crazy statement. Like, and we don't really, we talk about that in this really sort of like fantasy based way of like, he went over to the, to the, to the totally, shore totally told the disciples, yep. follow me. And they were, they just, they just threw their nets in the water and jumped out and started swimming to the shore and like, well, let's go. Where are we going? And there is so much more story to narrative to all that. Yeah. And it's actually, and it's there more than we read, I guess, but... Well, and also it's not all there because we don't have it, a beat by beat of Jesus' right. entire life and ministry, right? We're getting... And because that wasn't yeah. the point, right? We're getting the moments that the gospel writers thought were important for us to get, right? essentially. And so I, I just think, oh man, okay, follow me. That's a crazy statement. I mean, the last third of his parables are just so much about his death. And if it weren't for the fact that so many of the things that Jesus was whatever word you want to use, prophesying was saying what happened. If they hadn't happened, it'd be a very different conversation. I'm just really impressed by that. I'm impressed by the fact that there is, at least for me, from where my faith, where I, where I choose to believe is that in the spirit of God from the beginning and the story of, of the creation story and the fall and sin, of God bringing restoration and then seeing that and this really, the mystery of God being revealed through Jesus. I really genuinely just believe that there is such a invitation there for all of us to participate in that from now until whenever. And, and that for me is what informs so much of why I want to live my life. Even everything we're talking about wanting to live my life in a way that is bringing people together, because I think that that is in the spirit of, of, restoration and reconciliation, which I genuinely believe whether it matters in all the grand scheme of things or not, I don't know, but that is a place that I choose to, to live and exist in because I do believe that there's something better about that. I've been really interested in Lisa Miller's work recently that shows that most people have a built-in sort of a spiritual capacity. She uses spirituality as like a broader term than religion specific sort of approach. So spirituality would be that whatever that mental capacity is, is is accessed by all religious people and people who uh, understand themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. 
And that that capacity is, is negatively linked with depression uh, mm. more than almost any other thing we can measure in people. Interesting. So it, it seems to have to do with flourishing and happiness and, and whatever. And I think about the fact that we are naturally that way when religion starts to lose its grip in Los Angeles, you know, well, now a bunch of people are going to look into witch stuff. Something and, else. Yeah. You know, yeah. paganism. And I would say that's evidence of a, so there's this kind of fundamental orientation that we have mm-hmm. toward being spiritual. And, and Lisa Miller would say it's a fundamental capacity we have. Maybe, I don't know if she would call it a need that might be too far, but a fundamental capacity, you know, all the world religions and, and sort of approaches, including pagan spirituality and pagan religion, all of that sort of stuff, you can conclude, I think, pretty decisively that like humans are built that way. Then the question is, are we built that way by God, something divine, or do we just happen to be built that way? And then mm-hmm. you have a decision tree involving, you know, the anthropic principle and the fact that this universe yeah. can sustain any life at all and just these vast time scales and increasing complexity and evolution and, and being conscious of ourselves and our universe, being able to even know those things about the universe. And that could all be chance. It's possible. Maybe mm-hmm. it's some infinite multiverse. Every possible thing is generated. Right. And you say, why? Just because it is. Okay. I mean, that's sort of like a Southern Baptist answer to why it just is, you know, shut up. Yeah. Uh, of course it's not meant that way to <laughs> shut up, but it, but it, you, the point is you just reach an explanatory end. You hit a mm-hmm. brick wall. Well, it's that way. Cause it is that way. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with the spirituality option then, because I can either say that's all it is. We just happen to be that way. It's meaningless. There is value in recognizing that meaning is not wholly predetermined by Mm -hmm. a conservative religious movement or, or a culture or something like that, or a fascistic state with its propaganda machines. Like you don't want someone giving you all your meaning. You do co-create meaning, but, if choosing, if I have like a Pascal's wager sort of a thing between it's all mechanistic and we just happen to be that way and it just is versus no, we're that way for a reason. And, and probably this is related to why we find things beautiful, why Mm. great art encourages us to hug the ones we love. Um, like that could be meaningless or it can be meaningful. And if it's meaningful, then it is also tied up with all the religious movements in human history. It sure seems mm. to be. And yeah. so I'm, I'm taking that path if I've, since I have the choice. And then for me, that's a Christian path. So I will utilize the, the images and the stories and the liturgies and the practices and rituals. And I would like to do a better job of utilizing those these days. I had this thought recently, I was doing a big retreat with a bunch of writers and it was for, we were supposed to be writing all these like church songs and I was just feeling completely not there. <laughs> I was kind of struggling to really yeah. write. And it occurred to me that we try to sort of write these songs that are meant to kind of have this sort of arc to it and all this kind of stuff. And why is it that I could go home right now and write 47 love songs in a day? But if you ask me to write a whatever, a song about my faith, I might struggle on the first line for three weeks. One, one thing that I would say for me is while you might hear a person that is <laughs> hopeful, I feel like, or I don't feel like those songs are written over the course of so much time. And so it's really less of a, oh man, this is my every day. But these are kind of what you were saying, these religious experiences, these spiritual moments that are pretty defining and profound that we have, or at least in my experience, I should even say, they don't happen to me like every day or every week or every month or sometimes even every year. But I could, even from this podcast, I could probably write 10 songs based on things that you and I just talked about. Cause you, I know you Dan and, and we have a relationship friendship and all these different things that I could pull from in that there's a like tangibleness to this. Whereas faith is just 
by definition, it's not that. And so I think that in the songs that we write and why it kind of it's really important and why it probably messes people up <laughs> is uh, that are in the church or that have left or anything like that. It's like there's so many songs being written that I don't doubt the power of those stories in certain cases. I, I certainly would question some. I think that the pressure that is there as like an industry to create media and songs right. is challenging for me simply because of the fact that our spiritual and these religious experiences that we have in Christianity don't happen. They're not just like on tap. Like we, we actually have them, I would say more oftentimes either coming out of something really profoundly devastating and hard yeah, suffering, or, yep. or something in new life. Yeah. Deep joy. You know? Yeah. Right. And so, and those just, and there's so much of life is lived in, more life is lived in between that. And so I, I, I would say too, that's the thing about music that's interesting, even as I'm listening to you give your answer is like, well, I relate to a lot of what you're saying too. And I think a lot of that is, it doesn't always show up in a song because I think, again, the assumption is, sure. okay, this person is probably feeling this all the time, which is where we get in trouble is we think, well, this person is saying this thing. They believe it. I want to be like them. I want to think like, I want to have the same faith that they do. And I just have always wanted to make a point that if someone's looking to me in my faith, I, I wouldn't recommend the path that I've gone on. <laughs> uh, well. But I also would, because uh, I, I would say I wouldn't recommend it if if you're looking for someone to that's just always going to be this rock steady person or, or have this rock steady foundation. That's kind of what we're talking about today is that that's right. a fantasy. Right. And, you know, even to the extent that my sort of assumption is, when biblical characters are presented that way, that that might be a little bit of a revisionist history as well. That Oh, a hundred percent. I don't yeah. know any people like that. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's like, I'm not, not talking about Jesus, but other, you know, other uh, the, the heroes as they yeah, get Yeah, exactly. Get the called, heroes of the faith. Which, yeah. And that can be okay. It's, it's like, it's aspirational, right? It, it is, uh, in a sense, it's like a morality, a morality tale and morality tales matter because they inform our morality. And, to wrap it back to Jesus, like, who's my neighbor, you know, give me a clinical answer. And he's like, here's the good Samaritan parable. <laughs> here's a morality tale that upends what yeah. you think, you know, about who's in your tribe to wrap this around mm. to the culture war thing. As we kind of come to a close, I do think that one of the things that I read in Jesus in the gospels is pushback against a lot of our natural tribal impulses, which I think we come by honestly. I think we evolved mm -hmm. that way to survive. Yeah. I think that God was okay with that. I also mm -hmm. think that God's pretty interested in pushing us beyond that. You know, especially now that we know so much about the universe, people didn't know this in Jesus's time. I don't think Jesus knew this, the, the person that we're in a a 14 billion year old universe with billions of galaxies that each have billions of stars and in all likelihood millions or billions of life forms that will or have evolved to communicate with each mm -hmm. other and, and understand this universe and, and to then to go, you know, <laughs> but I'm a Democrat. <laughs> like how fucking small, like small, how, yeah. what a small That's life, so like, you know, look up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that to challenge myself as well, you know, like, but that is, but that is the struggle because mm -hmm. that is our, literally our genetic and our psychological inheritance is, but yeah. I'm a Democrat, but mm -hmm. I'm a Republican, yep. but I want to make America great again. We can do better than that. I recognize that those politicians and policies can be incredibly important for people's flourishing. And, and uh, I'm in a place of extreme privilege uh, to mm -hmm. not have a daily fight. A lot of people in my circle who pick up the culture war flag ha have, you know, are also in that place of privilege <sighs> and, and are not necessarily 
making the impact that they think they are. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, they are just rallying themselves and others, um, lighting up those tribal centers of their brain and, yeah. and you know, essentially not really accomplishing anything. Mm. That's obviously on a case by case basis. I'm, I don't want to judge too broadly, but anyway, that's, I don't know if that wrap up and connection is helpful or if I polluted the beautiful Jesus talk with the culture war talk, that, that will be up for a listener to decide in their own discernment, I guess. Absolutely. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining me today, man. This is a really meaningful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. I love who you are and I love what you do. And, um, it's just a privilege to talk for a while with you. Citizens five records, new EP, another record early next year. Listen to it wherever you listen to music. 